I'm reading from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49 and verse 50. And when you find it, would you stand with me to give honor to my Father's word? This is from the message translation, so if you don't see it that way in your King James Version, or should I say God's Bible, uh, in the message translation, it says it this way. I've come to start a fire on the earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side for how I long for it to be finished. My Father, my King, my Redeemer, my precious Savior, I thank you. I praise you and magnify you for all that you have done and all that you're about to do. Right now, this church stands at the doorstep of a mighty move of God. Father, let this be the day they cross the threshold into it. Right now, I bind every power and principality that is not of God. And in the name of Jesus, I set at liberty right now the spirit of Holy Ghost conviction. In the name of Jesus, I set at liberty right now the spirit of Holy Ghost hunger. Father, have your way in this house. Lord God, let not a single person leave here the same way they came in. But Father, let them leave here with fire on their lips, oh God, with a fire burning within them. Have your way in this house. Be glorified, be exalted, be magnified in everything. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, before you sit down, turn and look at your neighbor and make this confession, it's going to be a bad day for the devil. All right, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated. While seeking God as to what I was to deliver to this church, I didn't have to seek very long because he told me, tell him this, I've come to start a fire. I've come to start a fire. God has come to start a fire in the heartland. I said, he's come to start a fire in the heartland. Why do we need a fire? Yesterday, I was listening to Lydia Morrow as she was speaking, and she brought forth some statistics. And when she brought it forth, I texted her last night, and I said, Lydia, send me those statistics. You need to hear this. More than 33% of all traffic online is pornography. 25% of all search requests are porn-related. 70% of all paid content online is pornography. There are 68 million daily pornographic search requests. 25% of total search requests are for pornography. The porn industry 
is a $97 billion industry. This is, an, it, this is individually larger than the annual revenues of Facebook, Amazon, Disney, McDonald's, Google, and Microsoft combined. The porn industry earns more in revenue than the NFL, NBA, and the Major League Baseball combined. While we're sitting in church today, 30 million people are watching pornographic content on the internet. I wonder if we have 30 million people in church in the United States. Every minute, over 11,080 hours of pornography have been watched on just Pornhub alone, and over 12,000 550 gigabytes of pornography are transferred. The number of years that it took each product to gain 50 million users. Airplanes, it took 68 years. Cars, it took 62 years. Telephones, it took 50 years. TV, it took 22 years. Computers, it took 14 years. Internet, it took seven years. Facebook, it took three years. Pornhub received 50 million users in 19 days. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their homes. 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years of age, 76% actively search for porn. Fifty-six percent of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Gotten quiet in here. There are some that are sitting in this congregation that you fall into the categories that I just read. And before the service is over, we're going to have a call to this altar for you to get your heart and your life right with God. We have teenagers in this house that Satan is trying to lure into this industry. They're trying to lure them into viewing this. And this, this, it's become a hush-hush thing. Let's not preach this from the pulpit. And I ask, why not? It is time for the church to get back to holiness. Come on now. I was so blessed by a, a young preacher that we had this past weekend. 
who preached with such fire. And one thing, you know what this young preacher was preaching? The need for holiness. Back in 2010, God gave me a prophetic word, and he told me, he said, there are three generations, and I think I mentioned it last time I was here, three generations. There is the Josiah generation. That's those that are under the age of 25. Josiah is the only king recorded in the Bible who tore down the high places. The high places is where they had their sacrifices to the God of sexual immorality. And when God told me the Josiah generation under the age of 25, he said, this is the Jos- going to be the Josiah generation. This generation is going to bring holiness back into the church. I said, my God, you've got to be kidding me. It's the worst generation ever. He said, yeah, I know. That's my sense of humor. And from the age of 25 to 55 is the Elisha generation. That is the generation that is to receive a double portion. And now I'm talking about double portion of power. I'm talking about a double portion of understanding, a double portion of wisdom, a double portion of anointing. Because they are the generation that's going to be the one that's going to unite the generation. They're the generations that are going to help the Josiah generation along because many times they will fall and they'll be there to help pick them up. He said, in the final generation is the Mordecai generation. That's my generation. He said, the Mordecai generation is being called to prepare the bride for the groom. Come on. If you think your time has come to be retired, honey, you're not retired till they throw the dirt on your casket. I look at my wife, we're driving across the country, we're, we're both 75 years of age, and, and we're saying, what are we doing? Driving across the country, doing preaching here and preaching there, when we're supposed to be home retired uh, with our feet kicked up. Well, I almost had that happen a couple, a couple of months back when I, I, I decided to go on a trip, and I did, down 15 stairs. The doctor says, it's a miracle that a person at your age, you didn't break some bones. I said, no, I had an angel cushioning me on the way down. And you know, the funny thing is, you know, it was a week, about a week later, the Lord spoke to me. He says, you know that when you fell down the stairs, the angels were laughing? <laughs> he said, but not only them, but the demons of hell were laughing. He said, and then you got up. (laughs) Ain't no devil going to trip me up. Come on now. Why is it that God put this message on my heart? With what's going on in the world today, the only thing that will change it is the fire of God. And he's saying, I've come to start a fire. 
in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3, we read the story of Moses. He encounters a burning bush. And he stood in amazement looking at this bush. And verse 3 says he asked himself the question, why isn't that bush burning up? I believe his first question should have been is, why? How did this bush get on fire? Come on. I look and people have asked, what is it? Why is it that in Terre Haute, Indiana, there, there is a church that has been on fire since, since 2010? A revival has gone on in that church for 12 years, consistent outpouring of God's spirit in that church. People being saved, healed, set free, delivered. In Northview, Northview Church in Columbus, Indiana, there's the power of God that's been flowing in that church since 2012 where God has been pouring out his spirit. And they've had to open up another church because they just can't handle it all. God's just moving in a special way. How is it that fire is because it's burning so long? What is it that caused the fire to start in Rochelle, Illinois, back in 2005, a fire that's been going on and, and is causing to take the gospel to the nations? What is it? How is this fire started? It's, it's not just why are they on fire? How did the fire start? Come on now. And I can tell you right now, that there's a fire that's about to explode in this house. Oh, yeah, there's a fire that's in here right now. If you, if you don't feel it, then you, your, your feeler's dead. Come on now. You need to be raised up from the dead. There is a fire in this house. But, honey, it's about to intensify. This place is going to become a blazing inferno where the power of my God is going to flow in a powerful way, in a, in a way that you've never seen before. How do I know this? Because the Holy Spirit already told me that. Fire. How did the fire start? See, what Moses came to understand was that this bush was not set on fire by man. And therefore, it was not a man-made fire. Man's fire may bring warmth, but for a brief period of time. But eventually, it'll destroy that which fuels the fire and then die out. God's fire burns away that which is impure and leaves that which is of value. God's fire sanctifies, it purifies, it makes holy that which is on fire. It makes holy that which is inside the fire. Man's fire requires fuel such as wood, heat, a chemical reaction, and oxygen to keep it burning. God's fire requires a repentant heart. Sacrifices of praise, submission of our will and desires to his will and his desires. God's fire requires a broken and contrite, repentant spirit that he will in no way despise. But both fires have one thing in common. They both require air.
Man's fire requires oxygen. God's fire requires the breath of God. The ruach of God. Come on. When God gave Moses instructions concerning the altar in the tabernacle, he repeatedly said, remember, the fire must be kept burning on the altar. It must never go out. That's in Leviticus 6.13. Why was God so adamant about this? I mean, if it went out, you can always restart a fire if it goes out. But we get the answer in Leviticus 9.24. It gives us insight. It says, and there came, this, this was at the dedication of, of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It says, and there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. That when all, met, which all, when all the people saw, they shouted and they fell on their faces. If you had a bolt of fire come into this house and burn, and not burn up the building, what would you do? Come on now. So why did they fall on the ground? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> that was glory. Second Chronicles, at the dedication of Solomon's temple. It says, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. The reason why God was so adamant about the fire never going out was because it was not man's fire, it was God's fire. Man did not start the fire. God started the fire. But to man was given the responsibility to keep the fire burning. I grew up in the early, in the 1950s when God saved me. And I'll tell you, it was then we, there was such a fire of Pentecost. There was fire upon the church altars all across this nation. But what happened is we let the fire die down. We did not heed the message of keeping the fire burning. There was a time in history when across America, there were churches whose altars were on fire, the fire of God, especially within our assemblies of gods and the church of gods and the independent Pentecostal churches. From these pulpits were preached the message that without holiness, no man shall see God. The message of the infilling of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the theme of every message. And our fellowships, the fellowships that follow the guidelines to the letters of, uh, of the Son of God, the 16 fundamental truths, they kept sacrificing upon the altars. I'll tell you, I... I'm an ordained minister in the Assemblies of God. And I walked into some Assembly of God churches and I said, my God, where are you? Because I couldn't find them. 
I went to one church down in Texas. And, and we went in. It was some of the God church. And within a matter of 45 minutes, they had their worship service. They had a testimony. They had a special song. They had the sermon. They had the altar call, which was nothing. And they dismissed in 45 minutes. My wife and I, when we walked out, we went back over to the sign to look. Yep, it said Assembly of God. And I said, something's missing. Some weeks back, I was awakened by the Holy Spirit with these words. I've looked upon the altars of our churches that once burned with my fire but they no longer burn with my fire. Tell them that an altar that does not burn with my fire is a pagan altar. Before revival broke out at Cross Tabernacle, it was in 2010 when it began. In 2008, I was at that church, and I preached a prophetic word to them. I told them, I said, the day is coming. The Holy Spirit says, when your altars will burn with my fire. He said, all across these altars, there will be fire. And people will come from far and near, and they will take the fire from that altar, and they will take it back to where they are. And people will say, where did you get that fire? And you'll say, from the altars of that church. Can I tell you that what I spoke there, I speak here? This past weekend, the church was packed. The balcony was packed. They had people in the foyer. And the fire of God was burning in that house. Why? Because once the fire started, they never let the fire go out. God is about to pour his fire on these altars, but you are going to have the responsibility to keep the fire burning. To not let it go out. He says, the fire, that was not my fire, it's a pagan altar. As I pondered these words, I asked myself, what is it that transforms an altar that once burned with the fire of God into a pagan altar? And immediately the Holy Spirit said to me, when the fire is replaced with man-made fire, or when the sacrifices that I required are no longer sacrificed, then the altar falls into disrepair. Man-made fire is when you replace repentance with permissive grace that allows you to sin without consequences. Man-made fire is when you replace the gospel message of God, of salvation, by the, by the blood of Jesus with the message that God is a good God and he sends no one to hell. 
man-made fire is when the message of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in unknown tongues or the ministry, the five-fold ministry that was only for the New Testament and no longer required today. Man-made fire is when true worship is replaced with strobe lights, smoke machines, and musicians who have no clue what living is or what living for God is or what is required to stand in the holy place. Let me tell you, you musicians, let me tell you, you singers, when you're standing up here, you're standing on holy ground. The day is coming when those who are not right with God and they're up here ministering, God's going to take you out and they're going to carry you out like they did in the New Testament. Why? This is sacred. I stand behind this altar trembling because I know how sacred this place is. Man-made fire says we no longer need prayer rooms. Let's replace it with a fellowship room with coffee and donuts. Man-made fire dictates that if it feels good, then it must be from God. So indulge yourself. After all, not all scripture is from God. Much of it is man's opinion. How many of you have ever heard those things? Hmm. Every church that I've gone to that I've seen revival, the one thing I look for is, where's the prayer room? If there's no prayer room, that revival will not last. Many of the churches that no longer have the fire upon their altars And it's not because they accepted man's fire, but because they did not keep the fire of God burning and have allowed the altar to fall into disrepair. First Kings chapter 18. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not preaching a sermon that's making you shout, but. First Kings chapter 18, we read the contest on Mount Carmel. Now, we all know about that one, huh? Elijah challenges the prophet to Baal and of Asherah to call on their gods. And he'll call on his God, and the God that answers by fire, that's God. And we all know the outcome of how the God of Elijah, he answered by fire. Sending down fire and consuming the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, verse 38 says, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. It was a powerful display of God's power. However, what I want you to take note of is verse 30 to 32 of 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the most important part of that entire scenario that took place. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to re represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. The message translation says, 
He then put the altar back together, for by now it was in ruins. The Amplified Version says he repaired the old altar of the Lord that had been broken down by Jezebel. He repaired the altar. He put the altar back together that was in ruins. What is it that causes an altar to become broken down and fall into ruins? This takes place when you stop offering the proper sacrifices on the altars. When we cease to invite people to an altar of repentance, an altar of healing, an altar of forgiveness, then stone by stone, that altar starts to fall apart. Far too many pastors have ceased inviting people to an altar of repentance. But they have compromised the invitation for salvation by having everyone say the sinner's prayer so they don't embarrass the person in need of salvation. We say, who needs the Lord? Raise your hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay. Everybody stand. Let's say the prayer. They never invite the person down to the altar. You got Luke chapter 12, verse 8 says, Also I say unto you, whoever shall confess me before men, so him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Oh, we may embarrass them. They're not going to be any more embarrassed than what that my Savior went through. He was beaten. He took the woods of crown his back. He carried a cross in public and with nothing, nothing on. They nailed him to a cross, hanging there naked for all to see. And he did it for you and for me. My God, if he could go to a cross and publicly give his life for you and me, what's so big about coming to an altar and saying, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus? Come on now. In many churches, it is not that they are preaching the wrong God message. It's simply that they're not preaching the whole message. There is a fear that has overtaken the pulpits, and this fear has allowed a Jezebel spirit to tear down the altars one piece at a time. I thank God. I look at your pastor, and I see this man of God, and I said, he's, he's not compromising. Mm -mm. You rejoice. You've got a good pastor here. Come on now. The message of the cross has been set aside for only Resurrection Sunday. And the message of being filled with the Holy Spirit has been put in the corner for fear that if we preached it and no one gets filled, then people will think there's something wrong with our ministry. Can I tell you something? You're not the baptizer. He's the baptizer. Lord, the devil's not liking this message for some reason. Instead of teaching on God's power to heal, a teaching of God's sovereignty is taught. If it's God's will, you will be healed, but only if he desires to do so. Where in the word of God do we read that it's not God's will to heal? 
in an effort to appease and not offend or rock the proverbial boat, we have offended God, the Holy Ghost, and allowed Jezebel to remove another stone to fall from the altar to the point that no one any longer desires to go to that altar, for it is an altar that is without fire. 1 Kings 18 and 38 says, He, Elijah, then put the altar back together, for by now it was in ruins. Is your altar in ruins? Oh, you think I'm talking about the altar in the church? No. Is the altar in your home in ruins? Is there even an altar in your home? Every time we would move, my mother would go look at the houses and she would go first, look through it till she found what she was looking for. She was looking for a little private room. And when she found it, she said, yep, this is where we're moving to. And she'd go in and she set up her reel-to-reel tape player inside that room where she had all her Christian music. And my mother had a little prayer box. And in that prayer box, she had the names of people that she would be praying for. <laughs> Matter of fact, one, one, one year... It's after my father had passed. My mother was living alone. She had her prayer box. She sat down at her table there, and she prayed, and she prayed. Well, one day she came out, and her prayer box was missing. And she searched her house all the way through. She cleaned every nook and cranny of that house looking for her prayer box. Did not find her prayer box. One week went by. Two weeks went by. Three weeks went by. And then one morning, she walked, got up, she walked out there, and there was her prayer box sitting right in the middle of the table there. She said, Lord, why did you take my prayer box? He said, I wanted to see if you continue praying without it. She said, but Lord, you know I wouldn't stop. He said, yes. But I want you to also know how important it was for me to see you search for that. My mother would get in her prayer room every night, 10 o'clock at night, 10 p.m. She figured we were all asleep by then. We weren't. And my mother was not a quiet prayer type person. My mama used to say, son, when you pray, if you don't shake the throne of God, don't bother. And I've always said it's a miracle God is still on his throne because my mother shook it so badly. <laughs> and my mother would get in that room and she'd go, oh, God! And we would all go, oh, God. <laughs> Mama's praying. And we didn't get to sleep until Mama was done praying. <laughs> in one year, I was stationed on that tropical island called Iceland. 
six hours from Chicago. It was 10 p.m. in Chicago. It was 4 a.m. in Iceland. And I woke up at 4 a.m. and I could hear my mother like she's in the next room crying out, oh God. And I thought I'm 6,000 miles from home and she's still bugging me. But I'll tell you, I thank God for a mother that bugged me. I thank God for a mother that got into a little closet every single night and shook the very throne of heaven and cried out, Oh God, my son, my daughter, Lord God, my children, my grandchildren. She didn't let go. Let me tell you something. Do you have a prayer room in your home? Do you have an altar in your house? One of the things, if you look, if you go into a Catholic home, especially a Hispanic Catholic home, almost every one of them has an altar there where they have a candles burning, and there's a, they go there and they pray. But the moment they got saved, they got rid of all that because that's pagan, so they moved it out of the way, but they didn't erect another altar. My God, get back to erecting the altars in your home. Come on, say amen or ouch. I told you what the Lord spoke to me several weeks ago about his fire being absent on the altars. That at one time, brilliant flames that drew men to it has now gone out. But what he also spoke to me that morning was tell them. Tell them to tear those fireless altars completely down and rebuild them. Tell them to tear down those fireless altars and like the prophet Elijah, rebuild them and then offer the proper sacrifice upon that altar. This is what he said. Assign intercessors to set those altars up using my word as its foundation Lay the stones which are holiness unto the Lord and let them be bonded together with the mortar of intercessory tears of repentance and love. Then call the people together to bring the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. When I see this has been done in accordance with my word, I, the Lord your God, will send fire upon the altar and I will fill their houses of worship and their homes with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. Hear me. God says, I intend to do a great and mighty work in this house, but it begins at the altar. At the very fire has to be once again upon these altars. You may say, but the fire is there. He says, it's not blazing yet. I'm looking for intercessors. I'm looking for men and women. We think intercessors. Oh, that's the ladies. No, it's not. I said, no, it's not. God says, I want men who will bend their knee, who will cry out to me, who will seek me with all of their heart and all that's within them. I want them to carry that burden and say, God, here am I. Don't look to the woman. God says, I'm looking to the men who will be men of God. When you take a look at the scripture, it says he created man to be head over the home. That means you're to be the spiritual leader. You're to be the spiritual leader within this church. You're to be the spiritual leader in your home. Come on. Come on now. 
As the spiritual leader, it doesn't mean that you boss family around. It means that you're to teach them how to pray by the way you pray. You're to teach them how to love by the way you love. You're to teach them how to serve by the way you serve. Come on now. Say amen or ouch. God says, I want fire burning in your house. Let me tell you something. If you've got a fire burning in your house, your children are going to be serving God. If your fire is not burning in the way it should be in your house, your children are not serving God. Do you want the fire? 